What up, Danny? What's up, Ty? Shit, not much. We're on what episode one hundred and eighteen. We are. The reflecting skin. I've had a really laid back week where I really didn't do hardly anything, so I really have nothing to go into before we start into this show. I know that you probably have looked up some sort of news, but <laughs> yeah. nothing jumped out at me. I've been doing a lot of nothing, so... <laughs> yeah, nothing's wrong with that. Which is great. I mean, tomorrow I'll be doing something. I'm going to go see Gogol Bordello tomorrow night. Oh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And I took the day off from work. There you so, go. Hell yeah. I mean, I have like a four-day weekend. It's all awesome, but otherwise, yeah, that's it for me, so... I don't know. Yeah, on the personal front, it's been kind of a laid-back week as well. Watched a few movies... I purchased a copy of All the Colors of the Dark. It's a pretty good Blu-ray transfer, so I watched that. I watched another film. It's entitled Possum. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a pretty decent film. So check those out. Like I said, it's been pretty laid back. My mom just came in from South Carolina, so picked her up. Spent a little time with her. Did a little round trip to Kalispell and back. But yeah, outside of that, man, like I said, it's been pretty low-key throughout the week. Oh, yeah. Shit, do you have any news before we get into... Like, news news, not your news. Like, not that we don't care about your news, but, like, news from the world at large no doubt. before we get into the rest of the episode. Yeah, so there were a few bits of news that caught my eye. I figured they were worth mentioning, if nothing else. So, you and I, we've mentioned this several times before, we're big fans of The Witch, and we have mentioned the fact that Robert Eggers has a new film lined up. Well, it did get a premiere last week that was on the 19th of May. And from what I'm reading right now is that it's earning rave reviews after its premiere at the Cannes Festival. So from what I understand, this only has two actors in it. That's Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. It was shot on a 35mm black and white stock. Apparently the film is about an aging lighthouse keeper named Old. It takes place in Nova Scotia in 1890. So some of it's... Any of a friend's walrus? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> But from what I understood, it's kind of rooted in some mythology. I mean, it's only two people, and it's a pretty stellar cast, you know, with Defoe, Pattinson. I mean, I know a lot of people probably know him from the Twilight movies, but I've seen him outside of those films, and he's a pretty decent actor. So, so far, it's getting good reviews. I've seen it's won also a couple of different awards at different festivals, so good news. Like I said, we're big fans of his. I, I mentioned this a few times because of some of the actors and the fact that it is a horror film, but... A Quiet Place Part 2, it is moving up two months early to a March 20th, 2020 release. I mentioned that Emily Blunt and Krasinski, he's mm -hmm. going to be writing, of course, and directing this one. And it looks like Killian Murphy is also on board for the sequel. Oh man, so not only will they not be able to make noise, but he's going to make everyone blind. It's a possibility. It could happen. Scarecrow, you never know. <laughs> I this is a another bit of news that I thought was really cool because I know you and I are probably both fans of the anime, and that is Akira. So Taiki Watiti. Yeah, Taika Watiti. Yeah, I WB, saw this. Yeah, yeah WB is going to be releasing it in 2021, and that date is May 21st. Now we'll see whether or not it gets bumped up if it gets pushed back. But I also read that Leonardo DiCaprio is helping produce the film. Mm. So well, we'll see what happens with that. But like I said, we're fans. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no shit. I'm excited for everything Taika will like ever do. So. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing I saw was that 
The Creep and Creep 2's director, Patrick Reese. It's a horror comedy film. It's called Corporate Animals. It has been acquired by Scream Media, and it is getting a release date for August 9th of this year, both in theaters and on demand. It's got a pretty interesting cast. It includes Demi Moore, Jessica Williams, Ed Helms, Karen Sony, and Nassim Padrad. So yeah, I'm pretty excited to see what happens with that. I did see Creep. I haven't watched Creep 2 it yet. I do like the Duplass brothers as well. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Next little bit of news I saw is, actually, I'm a real big fan of this film. And that film is the 1996 thriller Fear, starring Mark Wahlberg, Reese Witherspoon. Oh, okay. But it looks like Amanda Stenberg is going to be starring in Universal's remake of said film as well. So... Yeah, it's a pretty good film. It's pretty intense. I think it has a couple of iconic scenes in it. Hmm. Um, we'll see what happens, which is kind of neat. All right, the next thing, something I've mentioned before, I'm a fan of the series, and I'd mentioned that the star of this film, Josh Stewart, had leaked, I think, a poster for this film, and that's the third installment of the Collector franchise, and it has been officially titled The Collected. So filming is going to be taking place this fall. I'd mentioned Josh Stewart, and along with him, Emma Fitzpatrick are also reprising their roles. So I don't want to say too much for those who haven't seen it. The second one definitely leads it open for a sequel, hence why we're getting the third one. If I tell you those, <laughs> then it's kind of giving the third one away in a way. So don't want to say too much yet. I've been meaning to watch those movies anyway. I can't remember if I've commented on that on the podcast, but <laughs> I've commented to you about that. Like, oh shit, I still haven't watched those. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty fun films. Yeah. Like I said, I've seen the first one twice. I went and seen it by myself once, and then I went and seen it with a friend in the theater. So, yeah. Now you own both Collector and The Collection, so... Yeah. And then you'll be getting the collected, I'm guessing? I uh, well, hope so. <laughs> Adding it to your own. collection? Yeah, why not? So, yeah, I'm pretty excited. All right, the last little bit of news I have is that Stand By Me, huge fan of that. It's actually one of my favorite films. It is getting a 4K ultra-high-definition release on August 27th, and it's got some really cool features, some never-before-seen deleted scenes. So for fans of you know Stephen King and or the film itself, this was definitely one worth getting, so I'm excited about that. Somewhere down the road, I'm pretty sure I'll be picking it up showed my nephew this not too long ago they really liked it so yeah i just feel like it's one of those nice kind of coming of age stories man it's been a while since i've seen it but i agree it's just thinking about it and the fact that it's getting a whole new release and shit i'm like man when was the last time that i actually watched it like yeah it's been a bit there's been a few times i've watched it throughout the years but it's mostly for sentimental reasons but yeah looking forward to that release so that pretty much just kind of sums up some of the bits of news i found interesting some of the shit i've been up to but, Hell yeah. Uh, really well, looking forward to today's episode, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, with that, let's just jump straight into the guts and bolts of the reflecting skin. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts of the reflecting skin. Take a look who went into the making of this gorgeous movie. And starting with a spoiler-free synopsis. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's not an easy one. Oh, yeah, it's not an easy one. Especially because... Oh. Spoiler-free. Spoiler free. Well, and honestly, not a lot happens. We'll get into this later, but like, there's not like a driving force. You know what I mean? I mean, there kind of is, but it's not clear. Anyway, a young boy in the grain fields of Idaho, (laughs) post-World War II, this is like 50s America, 
has to deal with thinks one of his neighbors is a vampire, I guess, and deals with the real-life fallout of that coupled with some child disappearances. I don't know if I can do any better than that. This is a fucking hard one. Yeah, that's understandable. But for the most part, just for a simple brief synopsis, I think it gives you an indicator of what you're getting yourself into. So with synopsis, you mentioned we like to talk about the cast and crew this week. We'll get right in and talk about our writer and director, and that is Philip Ridley. Now, as far as his directing credits, he's known for such films as The Passion of Darkly Noon and Heartless. He's also helped write the screenplays for The Craze and Vincent River. Now, he's also a musician. He's done stage plays, radio works. He's an artist. So he's all over the map when it comes to the arts. Yeah, pretty interesting. His film credits aren't super heavy. All right, our cinematographer is Dick Pope, and he is known for being the cinematographer in such films as Naked. This film, I was very surprised because I've seen it a bunch of times. Dark City? The Air Up There. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one that took me by surprise. He's also the cinematographer on Topsy Turvy, The Way of the Gun, The Illusionist, Man of the Year, and the film Legend. And like I said, he has a wealth of other credits, but those are the ones that kind of stood out. Our editor on this film is Scott Thomas. He's known for editing such films as The Winter Guest, Lawless Heart, the film Sinners, and the film Cashback. The music was composed by Nick Lacotte, and he's known for composing music on the films The Passion of Darkly Noon, Holding On, the television series, Vera Drake, and Carrie's War. Now, there's a film I'll talk about a little bit later on, for the reason why Philip Ridley wanted him on board. Okay. Our special effects was done by Lee Routley, and he's known for being the special effects artist on them films Bear Island, Out of the Blue, The Thing, and Motherlode. Which I thought was pretty neat. All right, this film was produced by Dominic Anciano and Ray Burtis. The production companies were British Screen Productions they helped present. BBC Films helped presented this as well. Zenith Entertainment... Fugitive Features, Bailey Stock and Bloom Limited, they were in association with, Telefilm Canada, they helped produce this with the protection of Ontario Film Development Corporation, they were also in participation of, and National Film Trustee Company. This film was distributed by Alliance Atlantis Viva Film for the 1991 Canadian release. Miramax, 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 yeah. They helped with the 1991 USA release, and Virgin Vision helped with the 1991 United Kingdom's theatrical release. The release dates were August 1990, that was at the Edinburgh International Film Festival held in the United Kingdom, had a September 9, 1990 release at the Toronto International Film Festival in Canada, and June 28, 1991 here in the States and New York, New York. It had an estimated budget of about a million and a half dollars U.S., and the one tagline I have is actually a quote from a character in the film, but that is, sometimes terrible things happen quite naturally. I hope I don't give too much away, but I actually have a proposed tagline for this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my first watch of a movie, I normally don't take any notes, right? I just sit there, let it happen to me, think on it for like right. however much time there is between then and my second viewing when I take the notes. The first time through while watching this movie, I got about halfway through and I had to stop the movie. I'm like, shit, I gotta write this down. So my proposed tagline, (laughs) 
It started out with a kiss. How did it end up like this? <laughs> That's pretty good. Because that is a quote that kind of rings throughout the film. It's just funny. That's good. Thank you, killers. Yeah, no shit, right? That's pretty funny. But that's pretty poignant, too, if you think about it. It's a good tagline for this movie, I think. That's pretty funny, but I could see that working now, especially now. That's mm-hmm. awesome. All right, so the people I just mentioned were a part of the crew. and the cast, we have some really strong actors, some that kind of stand out for obvious reasons. And the first one I'll mention, which is not really stand out, but his performance is definitely stand out. And that's Jeremy Cooper. He plays the role of Seth Dove, the young man we talked about in the film. Now, he's only done a few films. He has been in such films as The Gingerbread Man. He was also in The Book of Mormon, Volume 1, The Journey, and a film entitled Dangerous Crosswinds. If you're only going to have a couple films to your credit, how awesome is it, is it to have this as one of them? I know. That is pretty Especially gnarly. with your older brother co-star. Exactly, which the gentleman we're going to mention who plays his older brother was played by Viggo Mortensen, and he plays the role of Cameron Dove. Now, he, of course, has a very extensive film list as far as his credits. Some pretty interesting ones, too. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, though, like, who yeah. the fuck are you? Definitely How do you exist? <laughs> How are you, like, existing in a world online with, like, podcasts. I know, right? Like, you, well you just... have to be kind of inundated a little bit with pop culture to you would hope so. survive in that sort of environment, I would think. To the point where you at least, you would recognize his picture from the posters when it was Jesus. plastered somewhere, you know what I mean? Exactly. So it's fucking Aragorn. He's Strider. <laughs> All right, so some of the credits I have, of course, outside of the Lord of the Rings trilogy... Nobody cared, no. No, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's what he should be known for, especially now. But he was in Leatherface. That's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3. Which we should probably mention considering this podcast. Yes, no doubt. He was also in a couple of David Cronenberg films, one of those being A History of Violence and Eastern Promises, which I really like those films a lot. And he was also in the film The Road, which if you ever read any of the Cormac McCarthy books, man, it's super depressing. So I unfortunately have probably seen Hidalgo about five or six times in my life. No, I mean, that's another one that he had a a really big title in, but he's just a really good actor. Um, Oh, we should probably mention 28 Days as well. Yeah, he was in, was it The Fantastic Mr. Voyage or something like that? Dude, so much shit. Yeah, but I've seen some really cool interviews with him. You had mentioned off air that he speaks like several different languages. He's a super intelligent guy. Very well-spoken. And if I'm not mistaken, he's kind of one of those off-the-grid kind of guys, too. I don't know if he does to this day, but I think he actually has a place in Idaho. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. No shit. I can see that. That he sort of just retreats to sometimes, so. Nice. Yeah. Like I said, super cool guy. It's really cool to see him in this film. I think he lives in the part of Idaho, though, that doesn't look like this movie. (laughs) I think he lives in the part of Idaho that looks more like our part of the woods. But I'm not positive. I'm not positive on that. He's not completely isolated, is what you're saying? Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Well, I mean, he still might be isolated, but he's not in the fucking Amber Waves of Grain. No. Yeah, exactly. Like this film is set in. All right, so the next actress I have is Lindsay Duncan. She plays the role of Dolphin Blue, which might be one of the best character names we've ever run across. At least I've run across. So Lindsay has known to be in such films as the horror film Body Parts. She actually voiced a character in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. She was a part of Rome, the television series from 2005 through 2007. She was more recently in the film Birdman, or what was it, the uh, 
Oh, uh, the unexpected virtue of ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I also recognize her because I was watching a series with my sister and Jeff, and that's HBO's The Leftovers. And she did premiere in, I think, five episodes, I think in season two, if I'm not mistaken. I was like, oh, shit, that's, there's Dolphin Blue. <laughs> She was also in, like, Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Tim Burton's. And I love me some Doctor Who, so yeah. she was in The Waters of Mars. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Good episode. Nice. All right, so the next actress I have is Sheila Morse, who plays the role of Ruth Dove, who is the mother in this film. Now, we, you and I, that is, Tyler, we've probably seen her because she was in It, the 1990 miniseries. Mm-hmm. She was also a part of the X-Files television series. She had a couple episodes she did in 1993 and 94. We might have seen her in the film Snow Falling on Cedars. She was also a part of the Ray Bradbury Theater. That was the television from 1990 and 1992. The next actor I have is Duncan Fraser. He plays the role of Luke Dove. He's the father in the film. He was in such films as The Fly Part 2. I know you're not big on the body horror, but... (laughs) I mean, those are good films, yeah. No, they're good films. They just actually make me squirm. Whereas yeah, a lot of they are mo- pretty. Whereas a lot of other movies don't do that, so that's understandable. He was also in the films The Crush. You might have seen him in Needful Things. He was in the film Time Cop. I've seen that. I don't know how many oh, times. Shit, I yeah. know. Right? He was also in Seven Years in Tibet. We might have seen him more recently in the films The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and he was also in the more recent film The Predator. Oh. I, I saw that movie, and I still, I'm like, yeah. I'm sure I did see him. I mean, he looked super familiar when I saw him. That's but I think I thought he was someone else until I saw his name. And I'm like, <laughs> never mind, I have no fucking idea yeah, who this is. by the name. Yeah, That's cool. All right, so the next actor I have is David Longworth. He plays the role of Joshua. He was in such films as Friday the 13th Part 8. That's Jason Takes Manhattan. He was also in The Never Ending Story Part 3. He was in a 1984 film I've seen a bunch of times, and that is Runaway. Oh. That was Tom Selleck, <laughs> Gene Simmons. He was also in the film Deadpool, and more recently in the film The Shack. Cool. Yeah. All right, the next actor I have is Cody Lucas Wilby. He plays the role of Aben. Now, there was a couple of titles, one in particular, which I'll mention last, but some of these are Narrow Margin. He was in that. He was also in the film Night Moves. But the one I'm more interested Working in... Working on his night moves. <laughs> he played the role of Stig in a television series in 1995 through 1996. And that was Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, shit. He was one Aven of the... Aven was in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Dude, that blew my mind when I saw that. He was one of what? the... Uh, yeah. He was one of the Midnight Society. Holy... What? Yeah. Aven? Yeah. For real. Damn. That one really jumped out to me. I was like, hell yeah. Well, considering, too, it's kind of perfect timing because that film's about to drop. Oh, yep. Yep. I hope it doesn't suck. Likewise. I, I mean, I'll go see suck. it, but yeah. Considering I have heard zero about it. Likewise. I've heard dick all about it. I'll still go see it. All right. Next actress, or well, there's two actresses, and that's Joyce Robbins and Jacqueline Robbins. They play the twins in this film okay all right so i'll start with joyce now she was in the wicker man that was the 2006 wicker man she was also oh in... does she get punched in the face i think she does <laughs> she was also in the film cut bank she was also in jingle all the way part two and more recently she was a part of the a series of unfortunate events television series Wait, from 2017 you just said the most horrifying thing in this podcast there was a part two to jingle all the way part two I don't know how to feel about that, right? (laughs) That's got to be, like, complete horse shit, right? I would think so. (laughs) 
All right, so her sister, Jacqueline, she was also a part of the Wicker Man, that 2006 Nick Cage version. She was in Jingle All the Way Part 2. She was also a part of the a series of unfortunate <laughs> Wait. events. That's fucking crazy. And I'm assuming straight to video? I would imagine, yeah. Considering I didn't even know it existed. Jesus. Yeah, but Jacqueline was also a part of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Okay. All right, I've got two more actors, and that kind of rounds on our cast. I have Robert Coons. He plays Sheriff Ticker. He was known for being in such films as Isaac Littlefeathers. You might have seen him in the film Unforgiven, in the film Hollywood Babylon. And the last actor I have is David Bloom. There's a movie, Hollywood Babylon? Now, I am a devotee of the podcast, Hollywood Babylon. But (laughs) I know, right? There's an actual film. All right, so David Bloom, he plays the role of the deputy. Now, David has been in such series as Stargate SG-1. That was from 1998 through 2001. He was also a part of Stargate Atlantis in 2005. He was in the films Shooter and the film Okjaw. Hmm. Yeah. I kind of like Shooter. I prefer the book that it's based on, though. Nice. Yeah, books, I mean, the more you read them, the more you know that's like, they're always going to be superior. Well, that and... <laughs> For the most this part. Is, this is a weird little tangent, but the character was based off an actual person and the book came out in a time period where it still made sense for him to be a Vietnam vet, which the actual person was. It was just like this highly fictionalized version of this real life person. Gotcha. And the movie updated it to modern times and he was suddenly not based on Carlos Southcock and was just like this kind of blank character that was like a Afghan war vet, if I remember. And it was still cool and they kept all the basics of the story. But honestly, the same author did a series of books about that character's father. And those are the ones that deserve to be action movies because those books are fucking insane and are just crazy, awesome bullet action (laughs) and like mobsters like having Tommy gun fucking fights and bars and shit. Whereas the other books, the later one, I don't know in what order they were written, but the ones about his son, the like shooter point of impact and, and its sequels are a little bit more like slowed down single sniper against the world. Gotcha. Almost politically like Jason Bourne type things, except he's not quite so much a super spy as he is just a really good sniper that, knows how to hunt you know what i mean <laughs> yeah right on dude well yeah it's like so we've got a, a really cool cast really cool crew we gave our audience a brief synopsis there are some warnings ahead oh there's a, you there's almost a bit of see gore. yeah there's a little bit of gore i mean there's basic some stuff cruelty language. to animals yeah you almost see vigo's brown eye yep just about <laughs> you at least get to see the shadow of yeah if that scene was lit a little bit different, you would definitely have seen Vigo's brown eye. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of the goat, but... Yeah, there are some intimations of sexual acts, masturbatory acts. Right. Oh, yeah. This movie does a good job of sort of setting you at unease because things aren't ever quite right. Exactly. This is one of those horror movies where it's only a horror movie because you can't really call it anything else. That's a very good point, which, of course, we'll get a little bit more into. But for the most part, it is, I won't say it's tame, but it is odd. It's weird, so it can be a little unsettling. I mean, aside from that, I mean, it's nothing out of the ordinary that probably our audience hasn't seen before. Right. Another super arty one. Yeah, I would say it's a little on the art house side. Yeah. 
on the arty side. So do with that what you will. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, if you're a fan of that and you want to know a little bit more, I'd say stay tuned. Yeah, let's find out how this made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? Yeah, how does this make you squeal, Danny? All right, so before we delve into the film, this is one of those films I actually have a bit of a history with. So back in like, I want to say like 2001, 2002-ish, a group of friends of mine, you know, like any groups of friends, like to rent horror films, just rent films, you know. So one of my friends, David, if he's listening, I have a, a lot to owe him <laughs> for the reason why I'm into this film, but he had mentioned Reflecting Skin, and we wound up going to like a local video rental place in Spartanburg, and anyhow, we checked it out, watched it, and I remember the first impressions of it, like I knew it was art house, it was a little different style, it wasn't one of those you could pigeonhole into a genre per se, but it was one that was like, okay, I think I was like 19 at the mm -hmm. time, 20, something like that. So at that time, I don't know if I was quite ready to digest, you know, the artistic style of those types of films, but it did leave an impression because shortly thereafter, either one of us were renting it or we would all rent it so we could rewatch it. And there came a point to where it become like a, a running gag or a joke that if you want to go check it out at Pick a Flick, because that was the only place you could get it at, and if it was checked out, unit was one of us. Mm -hmm. And on one occasion... <laughs> My friends Sean and Kevin went to go rent it, and it was checked out, and they asked the clerk who had the film rented out, <laughs> and I had it. <laughs> so, you know, I have I'll a long history with it. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a gag. It was funny. But it was one of those films, too, at that particular time where it was like, it kind of stood out because it was, it was different. It was a little, like I said, arty, you mm -hmm. know, so I wasn't quite familiar with those styles of films. But long story short... More recently, I bought a Blu-ray copy of it from Soda Pictures, that Steelbook version. That Steelbook is fucking gorgeous. I bought it, too, on the premise that I didn't even own a Region B player at the time. I just wanted that Steelbook version of it, and it's, I mean, it's Blu-ray, so. Yeah, so I finally have a region-free player. I'm starting dope. to feel like I might have to get one, just because some of the only things that I want to buy seem to be these fucking versions that I can't play with what I currently have in my house. Yeah, that was a big appeal of why I bought a region-free player. But since that time, and now that we're reviewing it, it gave me a chance to watch it, see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and just see the difference between like a VHS copy mm -hmm. <laughs> and this copy of it. It's like night and day. No puns, but yeah. I watched it in 720. That's not bad, though. Yeah. I mean, it'll look good, but... I would love to see your Blu-ray at some point. That'd be great. Yeah, no doubt. Because so, parts of this are fucking gorgeous. Oh, man. Considering the attention to detail in this film, <clears throat> yeah. There was a reason why they finally got it to Blu-ray and the fact that Philip Ridley was a part of that editing process and color transfers, etc. It was really interesting. But, yeah, like I said, I have a history with it, and then we decided to review it. And I know that was one I've probably mentioned a couple times to you before. And uh, yeah, now we get to actually talk about it. So that's fun. And it didn't hurt either that Shudder is currently <laughs> streaming it. So it's another reason why we're fans, not just because we're reviewing this film, but because they have some really good films. It's not on there. Oh, it's not on there anymore? No. Dang. That's why I had to watch it in 720. Dang. Well, it was on there. And that's why it's like, I didn't know how long it would be on there. <laughs> Yep, nope, we picked it and they took it off. Oh, go figure. That's kind of a bummer, but it was on there, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so they might get it back. Somebody will get it. Nobody has it right now. I was the son of a bitch. Wow, okay. Well, I, couldn't, I couldn't even like rent it from Amazon right now. It is kind of a hard film to get your hands on, no doubt. 
Yeah, so this was my first time with it. And I don't dislike it, but it's growing on me. I think I already like it more right now than I did two hours ago. And yeah. I think I'm going to like it even more like a week from now. But I just watched it last night and this morning for the first two times. And parts of it are still settling in, I guess. And part of it is just that it's a film that's both really easy to take at face value because it does just tell a story. But there's also still more going on under the surface that you can read into it once you realize the way different characters interact with each other. Yeah. And when you realize some of the surrealism going on. Which in some ways should jump out at you just from the presentation to begin with, but I don't know. Parts of it, I, yeah, like I said, I think I'm still mulling over parts of it, and I'm going to like it more once I've had more time to think about it. But I do like this movie quite a bit right now, so. Yeah, it's, it's not like Baskin, where I was kind of disappointed at first, and then it grew on I me. I know what you like, mean, yeah. I like it, I just think I'm going to end up liking it more. And I think that's the, the part of the appeal for me, too, is like getting to revisit this film after so many years and experiencing it from a different age, too. Because we review films, we're a little bit more analytical. And like so way back when, I wasn't watching a film <laughs> to analyze it. I was watching it just for entertainment's sake. Mm -hmm. So now re-watching it, and even now it's like, man, I'm taking so many different things from the film that I didn't notice prior. And it does make me appreciate the film a lot more for its artistic merit. And yeah, that's going to be some of the fun things to talk about, at least for me on my side of the fence. Yeah, so I guess the very first thing, though, that... And you've already mentioned his name once, but during the opening credit sequence, I just did have the random thought to myself, like, what if we could stage a fight between Dick Pope and Dick Warlock? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The Pope versus the Warlock. And then I'm like, oh, that has nothing to do with this movie. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> That's so pretty funny. <laughs> and so then beyond that, the thought was a little bit more like, oh, and it made me feel weird because it made me feel sort of question myself right off the bat. Because, like, I grew up going ground squirrel hunting, but my opening thought to this movie is, like, <laughs> doing that to that frog is fucked up. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> what I liked about that part, because it is something that kids, not all kids, of course, but some kids, they would do, right? But not only that, but Ridley actually took that part of the film from an experience his dad had living in the countryside and working on farms. He said, it wasn't uncommon for kids to, you know, collect frogs and blow air up their backside. And he said they wouldn't explode them. What they do is they just put them in the river and let them float down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they get their chuckles out of it. But he said what he understood, at least in his experience, were that rural people treated animals a little differently, whatever you take from that. He said that was kind of part of the cruelty that they were exhibiting in that part of the film. He said that was also part of the film where when they were initially screening it, like at Cannes and different festivals, he said typically half the audience would walk out because they thought they were watching something that looked like a little house on the prairie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it turned into something really gory and different. So, yeah, he said that was early on. That was the make or break scene for a lot of people. That's kind of funny because, like, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, it's fucked up, but, like, <laughs> that doesn't even come close to being, like... I need to walk out of this bitch. Yeah, I know. I know. I was thinking, even for 1990, that's like, there's far worse. He's, it was kind of funny because that was like his Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where Texas is remembered for being way worse than it is. And it's because this gets set up with that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I always hear people talk about this movie more of a horror movie than it is. It's not that it's not a horror movie, right. but... It's nothing no. scary in That's this like, movie. That's It's not horror in the traditional like horror film sense, you know, jump scares or slasher, etc. 
I think from what I take why it's labeled horror is because of the nature of the film. You know, there's horrific things going on. Not that they're scary. Right. It's just harrowing and just, it's like, oh, kind of gut-wrenching shit. And even that, I mean, honestly, some of that's muted by some of the dark comedy in this. Yes, there is a lot of dark comedy. Almost completely muting it in some scenes, which was one of the things that I almost had problem with, where I was like, I feel like I'm supposed to be impacted by this scene, but you're giving me this right now, and I don't know what I can do with this, because this is now just turned into ridiculousness, in a way. (laughs) But I think the other horrifying thing is just... This is such a good piece of art because he does touch on like some timeless aspects of growing up and like the loss of innocence in a way. Yeah. Which anybody who's not a child that's watching this can identify with in some way. And so it's kind of horrifying in how it makes you feel and re-examine those things. And maybe when you had similar moments or just sort of makes you think about the terribleness of the world in a way. And, like, when you started to realize that. Yeah, that's a good point. This film, like I said, if you're just following it, just for, I guess, entertainment's sake, uh, that you can derive that from the film, is that there are moments where you can, as an adult, reflect back on. It's like, you might not have had the same experience, but there's some fondness to it that harkens back to, you know, that transition from being a child and then realizing the world around you isn't exactly what it (laughs) appears to be. Yeah, so that's, I think that was a neat touch, but examining the film a little further too there's some interesting things because of the fact that it's told from seth dove's perspective as opposed to the adults perspective in the film which first time watching through really wasn't reading into it now watching it back it's like this is a far darker film than what it appears to be on the surface so my first initial watch through i kind of hated seth and i kind of hated that he was the main (laughs) character yeah because he's kind of just a little prick and like I don't really identify with this kid. Like I kind of identify with some of the emotions that this movie's bringing up, right, right. but I don't identify with the kid. He seems to be like just not a good person at all. Yeah, exactly. And then the second time through, as I was watching it, or between the times through, I'm like, the second time through, I started thinking about how I would try to view the film the second time through, if that makes sense. Because now I kind of know what's coming. And what are the sort of the things that I was going to look out for? And I'm like, no vampire actually pops up in the course of this. But is there a way when watching this movie, I could make Seth out to be the vampire? <laughs> and then as I watched through that second time, I realized I missed some of the clues the first time through. And I'm like, oh, he's supposed to at least be considered to be the killer the entire time. It's always an option that he's the killer how you decide to read into this movie or not and then reading that article and interview in rue morgue right before we started the show sort of just confirmed that and i was like oh cool okay i was just a real dum-dum the first time through well that's the thing though too is the first time through there was so much stuff to digest i think part of the reason is the way that this film is shot it uses like these intense bright colors which makes sense because when I think of my childhood, and I've even mentioned this to my uncle who I grew up with, it's like when I think back on my childhood, I always think of it as like sunny and bright because I think the majority of my time being outside was in the summer where it's like extremely bright in the south. So using like bright colors and the way that the angled shots are for Seth's perspective too, I think it's unique in a sense because it is kind of making you feel like how he experiences things. But aside from that, 
yeah, the first time through in this film, like I said, because there is so much to digest, you can just read it as there's a group of these dudes riding around picking people off, and the only person keen on it just so happens to be this kid. But upon, I think, the third, fourth, fifth time through, it's like, hold on, <laughs> he's the only one interacting and witnessing these things. And it just so happens to be after, like, something that he's done really bad, like, give an example, the first time he interacts with the Cadillac is right after he blows the frog up mm-hmm. <laughs> on Dolphin. And then I think the next time through is after... And after he blows it up, it's not him, right? One of the other kids tells him, like, we're not supposed to do this. Yeah, and... it's Kim and Aben, Yeah, you know, and then they make fun of Aben. So there's moments that he has, Seth, that is, with all these different characters. And because he, he's not a blank state, but he's very emotionless after all these tragedies, you know? He's just kind of mm-hmm. almost like sleepwalking in a sense. But you don't know exactly when he's telling the story because it, it can be alluded that he's probably much older and remembering that That event. was the other thing. About two-thirds of the way through my first time, I'm like, the only way some of this seems to make sense is if I sort of view this as like somebody's telling this as a story. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Without jumping too much ahead of myself. Yeah, that's kind of how I read it the more I'm watching this film. Even though it, there are clues that jump out, but it's done in that artistic way and some of the dialogue, it throws you off a little bit. And that's how I think it was kind of confusing after knowing some of these facts and after like I said, reading some of the interviews and seeing behind the scenes stuff with Ridley. It's like, okay, he's kind of spelling it out for us. Yeah, that makes some of the characterization make sense later on. One of my last notes actually is that almost every character except for the children sort of feel like they're all in their own movie. Yeah. Which would make sense if you're retelling this from memories from a child's perspective, because all you know is that one weird little facet of their life that intersects with yours. And so you have this (laughs) version of this person built on this little wedge. I think you're absolutely right. I think the thing too is like going back and watching it is with those angled shots, when he's first approaching Dolphin's house, how... The house seems grander than it really is, and the mm-hmm. walk up to it felt like long and super exaggerated. So I think that's kind of the clever part of the cinematography, is you're actually not only getting the tell from his perspective, but also if you're paying attention to some of the shots, it gives you that illusion that you're a kid viewing it from that perspective. There's some mirroring to it that was kind of clever in this film, the fact that Dolphin is a widow, and now the fact that his mom's a widow... Mm. And there's like a little mirroring imaging of the houses that was kind of clever. But yeah, I think the thing that stood out to me was trying to think of the reason why people didn't recognize that black Cadillac and the purpose of those guys. I mean, aside from the fact that you could just write them off as the killers, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't think it's that simple. <laughs> I don't think that's the intention at all. Man, and part of this movie can very easily be sort of like less that he's the killer and a little bit more about like the loss of innocence yeah, and absolutely. like recognizing mortality and stuff like that. Yep. And like truly recognizing when you've screwed things up for other people rather than just like the child like oh I'm sorry sort of thing. Yeah. I think that is also through this movie. So with the loss of innocence though like there's a weird sexual undertone throughout the oh, entire yeah, movie is. that seems is especially set up at first by the black cadillac yeah that is very creepy and the very fucking call me by your name sort of vibes dude that's so funny i mean it's not funny but you know what i mean it's odd it's peculiar that we're mentioning that because 
the fact we were talking about this is a few weeks ago. But then you go from that into Seth and Kim. Oh yeah, dude, for real. Break yeah. in to her house, and you get the like the way everything else is presented in the house is a lot different than the when they're entering into her bedroom. <laughs> Into her space. Yeah. But then once they're in there, their demolition ends with them breathless on the bed and Seth rubbing a rose, a dried rose across Kim's mouth. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which only leads into them finding her masturbating. Yes. All right. I'm glad you bring this up because there are definitely... After she gives him a harpoon, which is super phallic. Yeah. No, there are these sexual undertones in this film for sure. And I wonder how much of that too is the fact, like you said, with the innocence part, you know, you're losing your innocence. You're kind of thrust into these adult situations and you can't make heads or tails because it's not only is it brand new, but it's also odd. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's unrecognizable, unfathomable about certain ages. Anyway, what I also thought was interesting was his father. You know, he had past indiscretion with this young minor and even his death, like the part where he's dowsing himself, is like that was kind of homoerotic. The way he, uh, and he he's had like that, the long nozzle and just kind of drowning himself. Yeah, drowning himself in this liquid and his son's <laughs> witnessing it. And they had the father son. So there's some parallels there too, I think, with discovering sexuality at a young age, maybe even discovering the fact that you might lean towards the same sex, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You can view it that way. Because I thought it was. It was a little too odd that these kids destroyed her inner sanctum. the The end was with them rubbing the rose on each other. Well, not on each other, but like you had mentioned, Seth on Kim, and then seeing her masturbate before they run out. And then right after that, too, as they're fleeing, the Cadillac rides down the road. Right. So you have these circumstances that aren't just you know by chance. The Cadillac, I mean, is obviously tied to his possible murderous nature. But his possible murderous nature seems to be tied to shame. Oh, yeah. Shame for killing the frog, and then oncoming shame from burgeoning sexual feelings. Yeah, I can see that, too. Possibly towards both sexes, too. I would, yeah. It might be that he's bi, but that's still not okay in 1950s Oh, no way. And not only that, but you can tell, it's like, that community is very insular. (laughs) They don't have any contact with the outside world. And you would imagine during that time period, too, that they would be highly religious. So that you're also dealing with that facet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's these interesting tones in the film that spell out a different narrative, too, <laughs> which are kind of unique. I guess along with that, too, is I was kind of tying certain things back together that kind of helped me maybe piece the story a little bit finer. It's still going to take several different views to really let it all sink in, but... I just found it peculiar that every time that black Cadillac showed up happened after something Seth had done, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it was exploiting the frog, whether it was like teasing his buddy, finding Aben, and then his dad's lighting himself up. So all these events were leading to something else. And you mentioned too, the kiss. When I first heard that quote, I was like, man, that's a hell of a quote to say to somebody because that doesn't make any fucking sense. It's a small leap from kissing to killing. But in the narrative of this tale, makes complete sense. Yeah. The water part was fucked. (laughs) Yeah, the water. What the hell? Like, it wasn't completely foreign to me what she was doing. I have heard of fucking parents doing bullshit almost exactly like that before. Yeah, this very draconian punishment. But it was still fucked up to see it and to be like, well, what the fuck do you expect? Like, (laughs) of course he's getting it all over. But then I thought it was super funny how he ended up 
pissing, pissing all over dude's leg. Yeah. yeah. That is a really interesting mm-hmm. scene in, in the fact that you get to see a little bit more of like the nature of the family that he's living with because they are super dysfunctional. You know, his mom is, she's halfway not there and halfway there, but she's very authoritarian in that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get to see the abuse that she puts on Luke and of course she's putting on her son and then she yells Cameron in like this veneration and she's romanticizing the Pacific Islands as like these pretty islands. So part of her fantasizes about, I guess, the world outside of where she's at. But then at home, she's like rolling with an iron fist, (laughs) you know? So it's no wonder why Seth and what happens to Luke later on unravels. (laughs) It's weird, man. But like I said, I think it gives a little bit more credence into why the fact that Seth is the way he is. Yeah. Probably why Cam got out. (laughs) The thing that I guess that's still bumping up against each other to me is like, especially now, it's more clear than ever that like... Seth is the killer. You know what I mean? Right. And it's not supposed to be definitive that he's the killer, but like I see that side very clearly. But there seemed to be, especially with like the homosexuality aspect and like the zealotry of the older generations and stuff and the repeated use of the American flag, oh, no doubt. there seemed to be sort of a commentary on the changing of values post-war yeah yeah although that also really seemed to not quite jive because i mean i didn't live through any of these time periods but the attitude of this movie i sort of felt more along the lines of post-vietnam war rather than post-world war ii yeah. except then they put it in the post-world war ii setting we didn't even have to talk about vietnam or like the russian threat or anything like that but it's felt like that same sort of disconnect and that same sort of like our heroes have been shattered sort of yeah idea i, I think what at least for me what helps make sense of release perspective is he talked about growing up in england he had this kind of romanticization of what he thought middle america the midwest was like during that time period like Mm -hmm. the americana of the 1950s so imagine these huge wheat fields and people driving around in cadillacs and women looking like marilyn monroe and guys looking like elvis presley so when he was at saint martin's college when he was studying art so he worked on a couple pieces i actually showed you one of them because it comes with the blu-ray but he did an art piece called cadillacs bullets and crocodile that was from like 82 just a small collage of all those items. There was one he did called Crow Coat, which is just a coat kind of shaped like a crow, I suppose, in a rocking chair. Mm-hmm. He did one, Fetal Blossom, which is the one no, you I saw seen, Fetal Blossom. Right? He did which one Which is with, very, pretty much just Aben. Yeah. Out exactly. in the field that could have come straight out of this movie. He did one... Not uh, Aben Aben, but, but Angel right, right. Aben. Exactly. The Angel. <laughs> He did two others. One was called Elvis Atomic and Beautiful Day. The Beautiful Day was where the actual black Cadillac is kind of driving in the distance with uh, Marilyn Monroe in the foreground. The other one is with Elvis Atomic, has Elvis Presley with a barn and an explosion in the background, like an atomic bomb. So he was piecing like these ideals and like I said, this romanticization of what I guess like people in Europe thought America was during that time period. He seemed to also base it off films like Psycho and just the way that, you know, that the U.S. was filmed around that time period. Mm-hmm. You can only imagine what certain things are like. But I guess what I was saying with the use of the American flag in the film and the fact that when Camp comes home, he's kind of rejecting this American hero status because of the horrors he had seen. So I think it's poignant in any war, for that matter, because it's kind of one of those unspoken truths. 
You know what I mean? Where the people at home typically they view soldiers in a more patriotic way, like they're the heroes, there's valor, which there is, but it's not always what it appears to be, right? So I thought that was kind of unique that when Cam does come home, like he's rejecting all those ideals, but his mom has that mantelpiece with him, like this hero worship. Mm -hmm. Seth is running down the street, that exaggerated shot of him like running at full speed, which is a second later, it's like the normal pacing. (laughs) You know what I mean? But he's draped in the flag. So I think that's why he's using some of that element of it. Like there's an idea of, well, and of then that, and then there's a reality. Kim is wearing the flag when he gets yeah nabbed. abducted. Exactly. So that's what I'm getting at too. Is is that there's ideas of what people think that means, and then there's the other side of that equation too, which is the cam side. You know, being in the war, being exposed to right radiation and all that stuff. So, which yeah. I mean, and I got that from the personal tale of Cameron, Mm -hmm. but the overall theme seemed not as in keeping with what we think of as post-World War II, so much as what we think of as being post-Vietnam. Yeah, because I think for, at least for you and I, I think that's part of the time period we grew up in too, is like... A lot of stuff based on the post-Vietnam period. exactly. Which is, you know, it's kind of neat too, is if anybody out there does get a chance to talk to anybody who goes, say, Korean War and World War war two and stuff like that there's some pretty gnarly tells and yeah anyhow you just get a different perspective is what i'm getting at with that so one of the only things i did know about this so i knew like two things about this movie going into it three things you liked it oh yeah for sure vigo's in it yeah and in kevin smith's film red state even though it's spelled differently one of the inspirations for the name abe and cooper is from abe in this movie yeah and then Cooper, I would imagine, is probably Jeremy Cooper. Uh, I would imagine. Or I I don't even know if it's that, I think. I mean... It would make sense. But, I mean, yeah, I guess in this context. But that's the thing. He pulled it from two different places, though, too. So neat. Because he also pulled the name Aben because of uh, Aben Sir, or Aben Sir, however you want to pronounce it, yeah, yeah. who was the Green Lantern that crashed on Earth and died and the ring went to Hell Jordan. Okay, that's pretty neat. <laughs> and that's how it's actually spelled in Red State. But then when Avon disappeared, like, 30 minutes into the movie, and he had only been on screen for, like, three minutes, yeah. I was like, what the fuck was Smitty... I know he saw this movie before he was a stoner. Like, <laughs> why did he remember the name of this kid? Avon. And then Angel Avon showed up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I would never forget <laughs> the name Avon either. No, <laughs> never not after that. Yeah, all right, let's talk about that for a moment. Because, yeah, first viewings, like... Just a little bit I can recall my first time watching this film way back when was yeah, that's definitely like, what the fuck is going on? They're finding this fetus and then they're fighting over it. And then Seth is like, I keep the angel. And then he talks to it and keeps it in a shoebox. Yeah. It's like, how, who the fuck is this kid? Oh man, under his bed. <laughs> yeah. My sister and I, we joke about that all the time is, you know, say if we're having a conversation and somebody's making a point, it's like, yeah, I know. But we do, I know Aben, or we're saying our name. I know Ashley. I know. <laughs> tell me. Tell me. Oh, he repeated that like one too many times. I was just like, fucking shut up. There's a similar moment that happens a little earlier in the film, which I think it's kind of paralleling that scene. The reason I say that is there's two uses of symbols that could have stood out to me was the sun and the moon. Okay. And the way I read it, you can use it to symbolize probably two characters in this film. Is I viewed the sun as like his dad, and the moon, the night represented 
dolphin because his fascination with her being a vampire. Right. Right. His dad so happens to blow himself up <laughs> during the day, and then it transitions into night when his other fears start to manifest more accurately, I guess, dolphin. Mm-hmm. And right before her death, too, is when he's doing that. I know he's he thinks that his brother's being fed off from dolphin. Anyway, shows the moon. And then also before her death, you see the moon during the day as well. So right. I felt like that was just a way of you know symbolizing that character, both characters in that particular instance. I have no idea about this part of it yet. Maybe you can give me your thoughts. What's yeah, with the go. fucking the pigeon twins? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's cool too. You mentioned like, you know, how we as kids, we only tie certain things like these weird interactions that we have with adults based off of something we connect to. So I think maybe with them is that was like a super exaggeration of who they were. That's just how he remembered mm-hmm. or like, you know, they were scary figures and this is how he imagined how they sounded, etc. But yeah, that's super bizarre. At one point, it's like, are they carrying the fetus? It's like, no, they're actually carrying a bird. But I was like, I wonder too if, I mean, I don't think it's a dove, but it's like, how ironic would it be if they were carrying a dove doing those bird-like, whatever the hell, odd vocalizations they were doing? Well, I thought it was funny that... The sheriff only ever had problems with animals, and you <laughs> yeah. had dolphin and dove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no... Even though they never actually gave him any problems, technically, you know what right, I mean? But right, right. There's was... a different kind of animal. Yeah. I thought it was kind of... It is kind of funny, that character of the sheriff, because he's My so note exaggerated. is, what the fuck, sheriff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially when he explains what happened to him. It's like, it's not as bad as what it appears to be. No. But I thought that was a part of the film where it, there is that black comedy in there. It's like, how exaggerated is that character? He's one of the first characters where I'm like, he's not even in the same movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, upon rewatch, actually, I'm like, mom's not in the same movie as everyone else either. But, no, she stands and out. And not in just the sense that like she's not all there, but like her acting and stuff is completely like, it's a completely different. different movie. And it's same with him. Like He seems like he's straight out of like some like 70s cop show. Yeah. Except super exaggerated with like these wacky fucking prosthetics and shit. But. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I like about it too is, you know, because we, you and I that is, we know that this story is told from the kid's perspective is that was his exaggeration of mm-hmm. what the sheriff looked like to him, even though probably looked nothing like that. Well, and Kim's grieving mom. Yeah. Chewing the fucking scenery up and down those amber waves Sin. of grain. I'm like, oh, she's in a completely different... Yeah. This Everybody in this one scene, the sheriff, her, and Seth, are all in completely it is kind of different a, movies. In a weird way, it is kind of a visual assault, given mm-hmm. like the way the pacing of the film is, too. Oh, there was one other... I, I should have brought this up earlier, but I forgot that I took a note about it. But when I was talking about the weird... How the sexuality themes sort of play in with Dolphin... And there's also one other part with the sheriff. I think it's right after, I think, that scene with Kim's mom. And he has his little speech where they sort of close in on his head quite a bit. And he's like center, almost center framed. And then you see the car and there's a little bit of space behind him and a little bit of space in front of him. And he starts saying, dealing with the type of animal that I've never seen before, the type of animal that does this to children. And as he's saying that, Dolphin enters the frame mm-hmm. Right as he's saying that he's dealing with an animal that does this to children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, 20 minutes after, <laughs> or I guess like 35 minutes after she gives him the harpoon. Yeah. I, I don't know what the fuck's going on there. <laughs> that's a good point, man. I think that's kind of the storytelling, too, is that you don't necessarily have to view it, you know, 
in a way that all the pieces fit together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So because there are so much weird stuff that's happening in the fact that you can't really trust this kid's narrative either because you don't know how far down the road he's actually telling it or retelling it. Right. And how broken he is by that point. Exactly. The thing that kind of, this is my own theory. This I'm not sure if anybody else shares it because I haven't researched it enough, but I'm going to stick my flag in it regardless. It's like, I wonder, I wonder how much maybe the driver of the Cadillac is actually Seth at an older date. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he's re-exploring his childhood as that visage of a later personification of himself, right? Like he's already gripped with the fact that he's a homeless or bisexual, homosexual. So that's why it's easy for him to pick up the kids, does what he does, even with Dolphin later on. So how much of it is he's just interacting with his older self, but he's retelling it from that perspective, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe that's what he's is doing that later even, on. Is that even the older self that's telling the story, or is it an even, even older him that's telling the Yeah, I mean, it could too? be much older, exactly. It could be multi-layered. He could be having, like I said, he could have dementia or psychosis and just remembering it in layers. That's kind of what I like, too, is like, you don't know for sure, but you're not really wrong if you propose those theories either. I don't know. There is the part where he chooses not to go with them. Yeah, he makes mention, too. He's like, are you ready, Seth? No, I'm not ready yet. He says yet, and I think that's the part that stands out. I think my first time through, I looked at the Cadillac more as like a vehicle of death. Maybe it was just not necessarily a real thing, but it was more of like a metaphor for something. Like it was a precursor to death about to happen. Right. I don't know. I guess overall one of the things I just kind of like about this movie in general is that it just like, it doesn't treat the audience as dumb at all. It makes us have to figure these things out. Yeah. But even the things that aren't hard to figure out, they don't just tell you straight off. And there's kind of narrative reasons for it. Like 1950s, they probably wouldn't have even known that it was radiation sickness. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. But they also don't spell out that that's what's happening. It's just like, he went and did these things and you're like, oh shit, then he probably, oh, that's no good. Yeah. That's kind of what I wrote down too during that sequence is like, yeah, he was a part of like those test bombings in the Pacific Islands and... He's come back home all fucked up, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know it. They don't how, know it. That was my question, is how much do you think he knows it? Like, I think he, he does, probably he does. He has that but... picture that I think he keeps as a reminder of what could happen. The results, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was something I read that was kind of neat, too, about that scene where he is showing Seth the photos, is, is the fact that Seth is asking all these questions, too, like trying to humanize the baby. And Cam was like, he doesn't want to have that connection that was one of the scenes where I was like, oh man, is this kind of like the changing of values between generations and stuff to sort of go in That's with like point. the changing America sort of imagery. And Yeah. I can see whomever yourself, including is reading into that. Cause that would make sense, you know, given the shift too, and the likes of the volume systems, I think what threw me off too was the fact that, you know, as a kid, no matter how like much of a shit you are, if you lose like a friend, if you lose a parent, it's going to affect you somehow. He like he's blowing at the embers coming off of his dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fire's like that's kind of fucked up. And he talks about the fact that he dreams about it, yeah. like something of grandeur, and it doesn't seem to bother him one bit. Yeah, it's like that's something's not right there. Right. I did love how that scene was presented with it just suddenly going to black, which is kind of the opposite of what you'd imagine. And then him yeah, pulling his fingers apart. That is a really cool scene. And the spacing, too, between like his mom, himself, the deputy, 
And I think Joshua was there too. So there was like this people. I just kept thinking dickhead. That yeah. guy was fucking. He he was kind of cruel. Yeah. Like I said, once again, it's probably 1950s Idaho. 1950s <laughs> Idaho, and the fact too that it's being told from that kid's perspective. Once again, mm-hmm. that's just how he imagines that character. But the fact too that he's watching all this shit, like he's always a witness to these things. This weird adult life. In a weird way, this is kind of like Nightbreed, in which it's a story where man is the real monster, mm-hmm. but it's not told in the normal way where there's actually a man. I mean, arguably, if you want to go the route that the guys in the black Cadillac are real and aren't somehow connected to being a figment of Seth's imagination, right, right. then you could say that there is an outside force that's the real monster. But in reality, it's just like human nature is the real monster. And simply living and going through life means that you're going to have to experience some horrible shit because of just the way people interact with each other. Yeah, I think the lines that Dolphin gives throughout, I mean, it kind of spells it out, too. She hits it right on the nose. Dolphin's fucking dark. She is. She's super goth. (laughs) But she has the most poignant lines, I think, in the film. You know, she tells Seth straight out that innocence is hell. She tells him, at some point, you're going to wake up and all this shit's past you, and you just get old, and you shit yourself, you piss yourself, you know, all the horrors. So she's kind of spelling it out. It's like, right now, you don't understand the impact of these things, but you're about to be thrust into all this shit really fast. And then when it does hit the fan, he has his breakdown moment. So that was my last note. When shit hits the fan, the movie, unfortunately, ended on a note to me that rung way more like parody. Because it's really hard to make a child's scream sound very convincing. No, I know what you Especially mean. Especially when he's giving like the no, like up to the heavens the sort of scream. And not just like moment. the breakdown sort of yeah. like crying. You know, that's something too. I even remember that seeing the first couple of times. It was like, man, that is such a weird ending. Just that and it's not even that it's a weird ending. I'm just like, man, like a kid's voice just doesn't have the right gravitas for yeah, me. Like, I, I agree with you there. but This there, feels like an ending to like a mad TV skit just as much <laughs> as it feels like an ending. And to it is kind of comedic in that sense, too. But I think the way it was supposed to portray itself, at least, was, yeah, that loss of innocence. Like, it's finally hitting him that his actions have these profound effects. Case in is Dolphin's death. Like, you can read it, like, one of two ways. I think you can read it is that the guys kidnap her, kill her. And he was responsible for that because he knew that was going to happen. Because he's seen mm-hmm. his buddies get taken off. They somehow have this connection and mortality to mortality just hadn't quite right. hit him yet. Exactly. Especially with the way he's portrayed earlier in the movie. Absolutely. And the fact, too, like, the impact it has on his brother. There's going to be this disconnect now, you know, because of that. That's going to be... Whether he gets blamed for it or not, it's another thing. But he does feel the guilt and shame for letting that stuff happen. Or, two, you could read it like he manifested like that to happen they said there's like if you pay attention to that scene that he has with dolphin right before she gets into the car is like he kind of looks up and almost has like this sense of like a liberation or like a sense of relief like got rid of that bitch Mm -hmm. you know but unfortunately she dies and it has a larger impact than i guess what his implication was i don't read it like he killed her like literally killed her it's hard to read certain things like that like how much of a hand did he actually have in killing people at all or was he just a witness to these things, never said anything about it, and then when he had a chance to do it, it was already too late. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's finally hitting home that he has no friends, he's losing his his family, 
and he's in a fucked up situation where he's almost he's not even a teenager but he's already experiencing adult things i do think that there's one little bit of evidence that might point to the fact that he might have done it and that's as soon as people start gathering he's starting to tell his brother not to go look that's a good point too yeah and the only way he'd be telling him not to go look he already knew is because he already knows yeah I think that's a good point. I mean, I think that's also, like I said, it's a thing that's, it's hard to read, too, because it's like, that's a kid, and what once again, right, it's, it's like... it's a high-tension thing. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, how much of that narrative do you know for sure is, like, that's not a literal telling of it. Like, this is not what literally happened. Right. This is yeah, just I'm, how he imagined it happened. Kind of Henry-ish. Yeah, exactly, dude. But that's the thing I like, too, about it. There's just still this ambiguity about it. This could be Henry's fucking childhood. <laughs> yeah, the onset. But you can look at that too. Like this is the onset or a precursor to a serial killer. Mm-hmm. He's doing animal cruelty at a young age. He's very emotionless, even towards his friends and his dad dying right in fucking front of him. The only time it ever impacts him is, like I said, when it's come to a point where maybe that was the like the breaking point. Maybe he's just completely psychopathic now, you know? Yeah, because a part of me, even the very first time through, even though I was like, this is, feels like a parody to me. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, actually. There was still also, because, I mean, this is a super multi-layered film, and so it was very easily invoking multiple emotions <laughs> at once. And I was like, there was a part of me where I was like, it kind of feels like him still being selfish, and he's mad about how it's still going to affect him. Yeah, exactly. Good it point. still doesn't feel to me like he's sad for his brother oh, it feels yeah. like he's sad that this is going to affect how he's no, going to interact with his that's brother. a good point too because there is a certain selfishness to being a child you only think about yourself mm-hmm. you don't think about others and so to me it was like that's a good point this was the breaking moment but for me the breaking moment was this is him he took the last step and now he has become the next thing you know what i mean yeah absolutely like the basically he took the serial killer step or like i said the first time through i'm like is there a way where he could be the vampire and so i'm like this is him becoming dracula like this is his step into darkness i think that's a good way of looking at maybe that's a part of the use of the vampire and the sun goes down as he's doing it i'm just saying yeah that's really interesting too when i thought about the vampire metaphor in this film it was (laughs) it was a cleverness of course is some of the visual cues, of course, she's wearing the same outfit that just so happens to be on the cover of that Pulp Fiction. That made me sort of like yeah. facepalm a little bit. I mean, I'm it, like, okay, it's cool, totally whatever. on the nose, yeah. you know. <laughs> the clever use of dialogue, too. The first time that Cadillac enters, his dad's reading the comic, and he tells Seth, he's like, you know, tend to it. He's like, my vampire is in convulsions. He's referring to Ruth. She's having fits. <laughs> Shit like that. But just the point, too, like, right after his mom confronts him about the frog explosion, the first bit of dialogue that Dolphin has with Seth is she says, come in, I won't bite. So they're playing on that stuff, right. you know, which I thought was kind of clever. But that's another good point, too, you made. It's like, that could be his Dracula moment with the sun going down. And that's the last sunset. Child of the night. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, exactly. No, the darkness. Is. That could be a good metaphor, too, why the film is so bright, and then at the end it gets mm-hmm. setting into dark. That was those yeah. transitions from light to dark, yeah. Yeah, it's just clever, man. Aside from just walking through the film, some cool bits I picked up, some of the inspiration behind the film, the whole reason why this was even concocted in the first place. So I'd mentioned that 
Philip Ridley was going to St. Martin's College in the early 80s. He was doing all these different art pieces, whatnot. He said with those, he knew he had something. He said just something, there was a story that was being told behind the scenes of just him painting these things, right? He said right across the street was a production company, and it's called Fugitive Features. And at the time, I think he was working on a screenplay for The Craze, and he had done like some independent stuff, like little short films, right? Which actually part of that Blu-ray, I just haven't seen them. But long story short, is because of his work on the shorts and the fact that he wrote The Craze, he actually got some financing from them so he could do The Reflecting Skin, which he wanted to call American Gothic at first, but okay. reworked the title. I think it's kind of clever, too, because I mentioned to Quincy, you know, that we were going to review the film and was giving her a little bit of my synopsis. And she's like, oh, that's clever. It's like, I wonder if the reflecting skin is like in reference to vampires, kind of like the Twilight stuff. Nah. <laughs> I was like, nah, perhaps. But I think looking on it, too, you could read into the fact that the baby, you know, is the effects of the radiation and the bombing, mm-hmm. too, is like, it's going to look like a mirror. So he got funding, right, from that. And that's kind of the question. like, how the hell did you get a million and a half dollars to do this film? Like a super art housey film. He's like, the BBC were a part of it. I think the BBC, too. So he's getting financing from, like, British State, and then some other people picked up on it. I mentioned Miramax, just kind of weird, but... Anyway, he started doing that. He said, I mentioned Nick Bacot, the guy who composed the music for the film. Oh, my God, the music was music fantastic. great. The music film. pulled me through the parts of this film that there's some, started yeah, there's to some lag for me. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the neat way, too, is, like, the way that the, the music kind of helps with the pacing of the film, or certain moments are a little bit more poignant, could be exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said really that is that he liked Bacot's work on the film Weatherby. Like he said, he was in love with that film and the, the score. So uh, he gave him the script and Bacot was like, yeah, I really like it. It's super dark. It was a little different than he anticipated. And then what he said, <laughs> really said to him, he's like, how dark do you want it to be? He's like darker and grander, you know, of course. And so that's why they use it's grand. strings. And yeah, yeah, so it was just kind of over the top a little bit. Anyway, that's how he got him on board. So Pope and Ridley, some of the stuff that inspired them, art pieces that was, were some pieces done by an artist named Andrew Wyeth. And if you look at some of those works, they're very American Gothic style. Even like some of the scenes that were in this film, you know, the scenes of like the interiors and the exteriors, things like that, were inspired because of Wyeth. When asked if he had any cinematic influence, Ridley that is, he said that the film Night of the Hunter kind of inspired some of the things that he wanted to do. He said he what he had never seen it. Neither had I. I'd read about it. It's like, okay, it kind of makes sense. He said that he envisioned the reflecting skin kind of a colored version of Night of the Hunter. So that was his cinematic influence. I had already mentioned that, you know, that frog sequence at the beginning was inspired by some of the stuff his dad had told him. What I thought was kind of neat too was when they were scouting for this film, they chose parts of Alberta, Canada is where they filmed the majority of this film. And so there was a lot of, of course, exterior shots, but they knew they wanted wheat to kind of encompass, you know, the landscape. Mm-hmm. So when they were scouting, a lot of it was done kind of in the early months of the year, like in February, March, right? And at that time, wheat isn't even in harvest yet, you know? And so everything's kind of barren. And they literally had to rely on the word of a lot of the farmers in that area. It's like, yeah, you know, you come out during the summer in the harvest season it's just going to be a wash in wheat. So he said when they were picking out these sites, they had to also imagine what the wheat would look around it. And so for Dolphin's House, they had found exactly what they were looking for. They said they are just kind of driving around, scouting locations, 
found the house, I was like, wow, this is exactly what I envisioned the outside of it would look like. So they went inside, and the way it was set up, he's like, this is perfect. He's like, each room could tell a different story. You know, mm-hmm. it has its own story, an exaggerated story, of course. But he's had a lot of those homes, too. Like, a lot of the places they found, no one occupied them. They were just vacant, but they were still intact. So anyway, they grew wheat specifically around her house to give that presence that you see later in the film. But when the wheat finally did grow in, it has more of an earthy brown tone than what they were expecting, like, Right, this really yellow, exaggerated. So what Ridley had to do is because he's so OCD, apparently, he said he would wake up at like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, go out there with spray paint. He was using cadmium and Indian yellow, like spray painting the fields. Mm -hmm. He said Because he knew that, especially at that time period, they didn't really have... The color correction could only do so much. Right, with Technicolor, he said, you know, you can only do so much. They can only do so much with filters in screen. So what he wanted... Digital now would be fucking... Oh, he said it'd be easy right now. He said, but back then, like, (laughs) you can only get what you can get, you know. But he said that, and and Pope knew too, is like, once the sun hit... Yeah, he said, once the sun hit, they knew it was going to pop on the screen. Mm -hmm. But he said the farmers were laughing at him because of the fact that he was going out there spray painting the whole field's yellow. They're like, this guy is fucking bonkers, right? One thing that was really cool, we talked it up a bit, was the end shot, you know, of yeah. Seth being out in the field. All right. They said that in August, typically in that part of Canada, it's always sunny, right? Okay. That's just a given. So for whatever reasons, when they were shooting during that particular summer, like they were just running into some really bad weather, like it was raining a lot. Anyway, they said they were riding around. It was Pope and Ridley and I guess some of the crew. He said, just so happened to get this sun break right before you know, the sun was about to set. And they said it was almost the exact red they wanted, mm-hmm. you know, for that backdrop. And they said they literally stopped the car and were scrambling to get the cameras and shit set up. And Jeremy, you know, was with them as well. And they said once they got the camera set up, he said they did this in all one take, mind you. He told Jeremy to run out. He said, I want you to run toward the sun. When I tell you stop, you stop. He said, like, and then when I tell you action, you run back toward the camera. When I say stop, of course, you stop, drop, and do your thing. So, yeah, that's what happened. So he said the kid really didn't have to do a lot of takes. Like, he kind of got it. Mm-hmm. You know, even though he didn't really understand the story. It's kind of like the way they did in The Shining with, right, with Danny. It's like he only knew kind of what he was doing, but he didn't know the larger picture until much later. And Jeremy Cooper talked about that, too. He said the first time he'd seen it, he was 11, and he couldn't make sense. He didn't know it was going to be this kind of storytelling because they mm-hmm. protected him from some of that stuff. It's just the editing technique, of course, mm-hmm. where shit was shot in. He said, but he understood the emotions he was supposed to convey, you know. He said it, a lot of it was in part because Ridley was, like, really kind of encouraging him. And his mother was on set, so she helped him to kind of let him get into character and whatnot. So it was kind of neat reading that little article in Remore because he, you know, talks about it kind of from our perspective from this age. Right. You know, where he was, like, you know, working with Lindsay who played Dolphin, he's like, she was very intimidating, especially that scene he had with the harpoon. Mm-hmm. He's like, he recalls that scene because even though he knew they were pretending and stuff, he said it was still like he could recall like being in a stranger's house and you're experiencing all these things and they're telling you this adult story, you know, and the fact that Sheila Moore, the woman who plays his mom during the water scene had to smack him shit. Oh, right. He's like, I had never experienced that before. He's like, she was like super, because she was like on edge and twitchy and shit. Mm-hmm. She's like, even on set, he's like, yeah, I knew she was pretending, 
But as a kid, you're not really expecting that kind of stuff. You know, so it's kind of neat. As a kid, he didn't realize what he was doing specifically, right? right? But Ridley said that the kid could kind of give you the emotions he wanted in the face and just his timing was really good. Viggo Mortensen had a lot of cool things to say about him as well. He's like, you know, it was easy to work with. You give him a direction, he would go into it. So even though he is not a likable character at all in this film, like he did a tremendous job for being like, I think he was eight or nine Mm -hmm. at the time when they shot this. Even the younger kids too, they did a really good job. It's kind of weird thinking about this is like one of Viggo's early films. Right. But it's like one that probably not a lot of people, if at all, know about it. So that's another part of the reason why I like it, too. Vigo probably had my favorite part of the movie. As it stands right now, my favorite scene in the movie is the brothers at the dad's grave. And <laughs> Vigo just sort of having the moment of just sort of lamenting the person that his father wanted to be and never got a chance exactly. to. And you kind of get the feeling like, oh, he probably knows. And he probably doesn't <laughs> care because he's actually went out seeing the world and realizes how much it really doesn't fucking matter. Like... Yeah, I see what you mean. What I thought was neat in that same exact scene is uh, Ridley talked about (laughs) one of the inspirations for that scene. Mm -hmm. He's like, it pretty much took it out of the scene of Jaws. And I think we mentioned this too with, I think it was in Found. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people get certain inspirations for stuff. But there's a sequence, I guess, with the sheriff and his son where the son is just kind of mimicking the motions of the dad. And if you watch that scene, that's what South is doing with Cam. So it's like, that's kind of neat, even though it's not meant in that sense. It's just... You're right. He's limiting the fact that his dad wanted to do something else. It's actually the mom's idea to run the garage, but she's the one always bitching about the smell, and she even foreshadows the death, and you know, which is kind of right. neat too. But this is a really good scene. Yeah, I just go overall the emotional impact, the human, the humanness Man, of it. I tell you, one scene that's really like I think that one where he pushes him down in the grave. Mm. He's like, "I won't kill you," whatever. It's like, "Whoa, that's." It's kind of nasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other scene is where Seth is like kind of pleading with him. He's like, don't do it. And he's telling him, you know, he's going to leave. He loves her. But he's like shaking him and stuff. It's like, it's pretty yeah. strong acting. Yeah. Shit. I don't know. I still have more to think over on this movie. Um, yeah. There is a lot to digest because it is multi-layered. You know, even once or twice through, it's, there's still a lot of stuff to kind of digest. Yeah, like I said, for me, I've seen it probably like at least a half a dozen times, and I'm still learning stuff about this film, still getting different things from it. And I think that's the kind of the neat thing, too, about what we do is we get the chance to go back through these films mm-hmm. that we've seen who knows how many times, but because we're analyzing them now, so we get a little something different from it. And uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I think this film deservedly has a cult status. I think it's one, you know, for people who are, you know, maybe not necessarily into horror, but like these type of tells where they're yeah, exaggerated. Um, you could definitely like this movie and not be into horror. Yeah, it's like, it's a hard film to really pinpoint in terms of the genre because it fits into different genres too. It's a multi-genre film. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially just a, an indie art house film <laughs> from 1990. But yeah, it's just kind of a weird history once again that I'm having with certain films like this one. It wasn't for one of my nerdy friends who... He doesn't only like art house stuff, but he tends to lean towards the obscure. Mm-hmm. So having him as a friend, like this film, there's another film. that It's not horror, but I'll mention it. It's called Liquid Sky. That's another one of those weird, culty, 
you know, either early 1980s, early 1990s films. They're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> but it's fun getting to re-experiencing these and getting to take something else out of it. And yeah, there's a reason why I have these copies. <laughs> you yeah, know? no shit. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful so, fucking copy. I'm glad we got to too. talk about it. I know it's one I've been kind of, you know, harping on for a little while. But yeah, it's, it's just fun. And it's nice to know that the actors like Lindsay Duncan and Viggo Mortensen and the fact that Philip Ridley, they're like, it's neat because the internet, what it's doing is just having this community of people who look for these types of films. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's kind of like a snowball effect. It's gaining momentum, even though they knew it was going to be hard to get distribution because it didn't fit into a genre. They knew that, you know, it was going to be in a limbo in a sort. And it wasn't until technology started to, you know, resurge these styles of film. So it's it's one I'm glad we're kind of maybe early on the on the bandwagon. Shit, I agree. And I'm glad you made me watch this movie. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's uh like I said, it's one of those Viggo Mortensons you don't really think about. But with the internet causing things to <laughs> to snowball down, it would be amazing if you would go over onto Apple and leave us a rating and review. Yeah. Tell your Especially friends. if you loved us, please love us. Because that helps us get into the algorithm so more people can hear us. And so that you can continue hearing us, please hit subscribe however you're listening. That would be awesome as well. We're available on all the major podcasting platforms. Or you can always head over our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Links up at the top. Latest episode always streaming <laughs> down at the bottom. And in between, you're going to find links to the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, and our entire complete back archive. So you can go check out all the other movies we've talked about, which would also be awesome. Yeah, we've done uh, quite a few. <laughs> and you can contact us through the website or at squirmcast at gmail.com. Am I forgetting anything? No. If you want to leave us a suggestion, if you have a recommendation for a film you like to hear us review, maybe if you're in the industry and you need somebody to help talk about your film let us know we're always Uh, up for that exactly and i think we're gonna go figure out what movie we're gonna talk about next week yeah i'm sure we're gonna do it while we get high that's right so i'm tyler i'm danny fried squirms out. out